Well, good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be here, and we will begin in a moment. Oh, okay. I guess we're not doing video. That's fine, too. That's fine, too. So last yesterday, we had an opportunity. Uh, if you weren't downtown at a, a rally, uh, you're probably at the prayer and meditation session with the women folks, and so it was just wonderful to get this picture of um, how we had opportunity. Um, our sisters had an opportunity, led by Joyce and others, uh, to do that. Um, and so we got to give thanks for that. Um, also, we have opportunity um, to just to share a little bit about something. And I want to share with you something because of this, uh, this is not original, but if you know the answer, don't tell, okay? So you know this, this is a, a jar. And if you decide to fill your jar up with stuff, what you can do is you can fill your jar up with stuff, baseball, and have all these things fill up your life, yes? Pretty full? What do you think? Pretty full? What if I try to add more in there? We could get more in there, yeah? If we messed around and I was going to ask, I was going to do an all call to uh, folks who had, this, this is supposed to go down, by the way. You guys get it. You guys get it. Oh, oh, oh. Try, I'll try stuffing more in there. Okay, is that full? That's pretty full. Can we get any more in? Down the bottom. We have to rearrange everything, get it all on the bottom, right? We can shake it around a little bit, or I could add more. Yes? And keep shaking, adding, shaking, adding, shaking, adding, shaking, adding, shaking, adding. You get the picture. What are we trying to do? We're trying to pack as much in here as possible, right? And if I were at home, I'd fill this up and do it again. And then if I were really good, could I add more in there? What would I add in there? Air. Air. We could add more rocks. Then you could add sand, right? We could pack it in even tighter. We could add, beyond sand, we could add what? Water, right? And then get really full. You couldn't put anything else in except you could put in what? Ethanol. All right? You put ethanol in there, virtually change the... Th I was a chemical engineer in the previous life. <laughs> so, uh, and then food coloring, probably. Um, and so the idea is, of course, you know the idea. If you want to add a big priority into your life, you always start with what? You always start with the big stuff first. Right? You always start with the big stuff first because this is not going to fit very well. We'd have to empty this thing and really start again. Okay, I'm going to try to do this without breaking anything. You get it. You have to empty it and start with the big stuff, the important stuff first. And then you can add as other things as you go along. Keep going. Okay? We're going to talk about placing our priorities where they belong so we can get the important stuff in first. And the question is, why is it that Scripture tells us, commands us, um, uh, invites us to pre-prioritize our lives? To, to really prioritize and make God and His kingdom first in our lives. 
We've heard that. Many of us know that famous pa passage, right? Seek first the kingdom of God. And so the command has always been there. Christ himself says it. And yet many of us have a hard time putting the big ball in first. And we're going to talk about that and why some three uh, reasons here in Scripture this morning in Matthew 6, uh, why we can um, prioritize, why we must, why we're invited to prioritize and place God and his kingdom first in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you love us, that you call us to be your children. We ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we might experience you, know you more deeply and more fully, that we would trust in you and believe in you and in your word so that we might live lives that truly are to the full, so that we experience your goodness and your love in deeper measure, that your kingdom would come, your will would be done in our lives, in our world, as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus. Amen. We're going to quickly take a look at Matthew chapter 6. It's a pretty dense passage, and um, we're not going to have time in my uh, few minutes to do a great justice, but I'm going to skim across the top and suggest some of the ideas behind this. Um, and so the first one is that we, as we read this p passage, um, we can see um, that uh, we're exhorted to prioritize the only thing that's truly, eternally secure, that which is eternally secure. Don't hoard treasures down here where it gets eaten by moths and erode, uh, corroded by rust or worse, stolen by uh, burglars. Stockpile treasures in heaven where it is safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where you, your treasure is is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Matthew 21. Um, it, we'll just go back for a second. Let's go back to that other slide, Earl, thanks, um, in the message. And so um, many of us are more familiar, perhaps, with the uh, NIV version. And it talks about how it is that we are uh, to prioritize and recognize those things that are temporal versus those things that are eternal, right? Um, we had to go to expend a lot of money this week in our minivan. We have a 2005 Sienna Toyota. Uh, Toyota Sienna, and the thing has rusted out from the underside, so we need all this repair to the underside because we live in New England, right? We have salt, we have water, we don't have a garage, so this thing's corroding from the inside. All these parts need to be replaced from muffler to a catalytic converter thingy and differential thing is starting to rust through, and all these things is because why? Because it doesn't last. As nice as a Sienna was when it was new, reliable, expensive, um, you know, it doesn't last. I have a friend, a, a Christian brother, who was um, invested heavily in, in the early 2000s and mid-2000s in one mutual fund that was so good. It was supposed to be diverse. It was supposed to be wonderful. He almost doubled his uh, uh, portfolio. He was a millionaire plus on paper, right? You know that. You know what happened, right? In 2008, the stock market took a huge correction. We went into a recession, and he lost about 40 to 50% of his portfolio. In a matter of days, he went from being a millionaire to being someone who's just thinking about, well, how am I going you know, to figure this out in terms of getting enough money to live from week to week? Because things don't last in this world. I was speaking to Tien yesterday, uh, the other day. He's been visiting from Singapore. He used to work for one of the most important companies, biggest companies in the world back uh, a, a decade and a half ago, Kodak. You know, we, we talked about Kodak. And I was going to, I looked for my last film cartridge. I couldn't find it. 
<laughs> Some of us are old enough to remember it. Film cartridges, remember? Film cartridges. And up came, and he was telling me, Tim was telling me how it is that um, uh, a decade and a half ago, um, Kodak actually developed one of the first digital cameras. Did you know that? It spent all this R&D on digital cameras and monitors, came up with a $20,000 digital camera. And they had all these departments and all these people, and what they decided, he, he told me they had this big meeting, they decided that, you know, digital's not the, we shouldn't go digital because it'll kill our film business. So even though they had all this technology, they had, were leaders, they decided that they're gonna kill that program because they depended so much on film for their co company bottom line. We know that it ha Kodak, you know, hardly any of us who are young know the name. It used to be Kodak Moments, transformed all our lives. But it went bankrupt and filed for um, bankruptcy in 2012 or 13. There's a little company now, has, they do digital stuff now. Um, so, but things in our world don't last. It's hard to realize, but you know, all the things we spend so much time accumulating and, and getting, we recognize that things just don't last. And so the scriptures exhort us, exhort us to instead stockpile treasures in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and where burglars cannot steal. You and I need to realize scriptures want the best for us. They want us to invest in that which is eternal, that which is secure. Okay, and so the first idea here is why should we prioritize? Why should we put the big rocks, God, and his kingdom first? Because it's the most secure, most important, lasting kind of investment that you can make. Your time, your treasures, your talents. Investing in people. Caring for them, ministering to them. These are things that will last. In the next passage, what we see just the next part is, is, is a pa uh, part of the scripture that always intrigued me. Um, and so I, I wanted to read it in a different um, uh, translation to get some help. Um, your eyes are a window into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body is filled with light. If you live squinty-eyed in uh, greed and distrust, your body is in a dank, uh, like a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds of the windows down, uh, what dark light life you will have. That's the message version. That's Eugene Peterson. But the NLT, the New Living Translation, translates that last part very interestingly. It says, and if the light that you think that you have is actually darkness, how deep is that darkness? I think that helps us understand this passage. This passage talks about how it is that uh, we are sometimes fooled. We are sometimes deceived um, in our own understanding. Uh, Keller, uh, Tim Keller suggests that um, greed, uh, modus operandi of greed is that the people who are the most greedy cannot see their own greed. That it is one of those things that as we understand consumerism and all the things that uh, uh, enslave us, we are the ones who are least able to see it. He suggests that even though we live in the top economy of, of all the world, I forget which author said, of all world history, you and I, probably the majority of us, live in the lap of luxury that less than 1% of all human beings that ever lived on planet Earth experience. Think about that. 
that our sense of luxury, our sense of the things that we have, you know, you, you, you know, um, is top 1% of all the people who've lived in world history up to this point. Wow. And he's saying, no, it couldn't be. Look at me. Humble. Right? Means. And he says, the reason why, Keller suggests, is because we have this thing, uh, psychologists uh, suggest it, it, it is, um, uh, uh, it, it's, called, it's called socioeconomic bracketing. Socioeconomic bracketing. You see, when you attain, and you and I attain to a certain socioeconomic bracket and status, we start hanging out, we, we, we purchase homes and things in a certain neighborhood. Our friends have a certain kind of socioeconomic status. Um, we have the same kind of expectations in where we send our kids to school. We have certain kind of cars that we drive. We kind of do all these things and we are in this bracket. Does that make sense? And what happens in this bracket is that we tend to look at other people in our own bracket exclusively. And so this is particularly true in maybe the suburban you know, kind of settings, right? We look at ourselves only with regard to other people in that bracket. And so then we say, whoa, I don't, you know, my house is not as nice as so-and-so's. My car is not as nice as so-and-so's, right? Um, that person gets a lot nicer salary than me. They get a bonus and I don't, you know. And we start comparing ourselves to everyone in that bracket. And so we only feel, we don't feel, you know, that well off. We're in the bracket. Two things happening. We're only comparing ourselves with people in that bracket, so we feel okay about that. And the other thing is that that bracket oftentimes slowly inches up over time, right? So think about when you first uh, graduated from high school or college, and what socioeconomic bracket and what kind of clothes you wore and what kind of you know, places that you went to eat at and those kind of things, what kind of car you drove. And somehow over time, that bracket moved up right? We didn't really notice it. It just happened. And so because of that, we often don't sense and know um, that uh, Nietzsche said that God has replaced, um, sorry, uh, money has replaced what God used to be. Keller calls it the most uh, 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 prevalent of our counterfeit gods. We need to be careful because wealth and status and power and money are deceitful. So we need to be careful about that. Wally Wadman, who was part of the Athletes for Christ, right, AFC, he says in uh, 2008, he, he was coming back on a plane ride, and this great quote, and I think I'll, I'll see if I can remember this quote. Um, if you've lost your money, and wealth, you've lost nothing. If you lose your health, you've lost something. But if you lose your soul, you've lost everything. Where are we putting our treasures? In God and his kingdom or in nothing? That was point. One, we can prioritize because God is the only one in his kingdom who's most secure, one that is everything, not nothing. 
The second in this passage is prioritizing that which is on, the only worthy and truly worthy God. I'm going to say God, okay? You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one, you'll end up hating the other. Adoring one uh, feeds contempt for the other. You cannot or can't worship God and money both. And, and the NLT uh, translation uh, was underlined, you cannot serve God and be enslaved to money simultaneously. Of course, the NIV, many of us have, have read the NIV. Um, no one can serve two masters. Either you have one and ha sorry, hate the one and love the other, or you uh, will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or mammon. Here, the, the idea and the um, principle here is that there is only one God. We can only serve one God in our lives. Scriptures remind us that we have to, uh, we're always um, worshiping something. If it's God or ourselves or it's manna, we are worshiping something in our lives. Something in our lives orients us. Something in our lives is on the throne that kind of is in charge of everything, as it were. It's the master of our lives. We don't always think about it, but surely we know that there is something that orients our life. Some principle, some person, some being, some goal that orients our lives. And so scriptures continually, continually, especially, um, for instance, in the Old Testament scriptures, it reminds us that in the Ten Commandments, there shall be no other God beside me, right? Um, in the Shema of the uh, Hebrews, they quote it and, and, and said the prayers five times a day. It starts with, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, or it can be translated, the Lord God is one God alone. So we recognize that the exhortation is always there, that there shall be no one beside God on the throne of our hearts. And the New Testament oftentimes uses that idea of cornerstone. You know the cornerstone in the ancient, scripture, ancient buildings? The cornerstone was that large um, foundational stone that sat in the front corner of the building that everything else was aligned to. So this giant uh, mammoth stone, oftentimes, you know, granite or some other uh, rock would be the one that everything else would be aligned to. It would place the level, the direction here and there of the entire building. And if that stone were off or tilted, the whole building would be off, right, or tilted. And so what happens is that we have a cornerstone. The question is, what is our cornerstone? Everyone has one. Everyone has one. And here it reminds us that it cannot be either God or something else. And only God is the one who's worthy. He's the creator. He's the one who created all things. And because of that, he's not only a creator God, but he's also the one who calls us to be his daughters and sons in Christ Jesus. He's a God of creation, powerful, majestic, and foreordaining, and foreknowing, and all these things. He's also the one who calls us in Christ to give of his son so that you and I might be daughters and sons of his through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He is the only one worthy of being on the throne of our lives, only one worthy to be the cornerstone by which we build our lives upon. During the summer, we had an opportunity to go to um, Camp of the Woods. 
And at Cap of the Woods, we met a wonderful couple, uh, Jeff and Judy um, Heath. Jeff and Judy Heath. And what happens is Jeff and, Jeff and Judy, they had this life principle. And I'll show you a little bit. They, they are, uh, um, Grace Chapel supports them as their um, ambassadors to Chad. They work in, in Africa. They work with um, uh, Bible translators to translate scripture from the original language, Greek and Hebrew, uh, into the local dialect in Chad. And what happens is that they have been preparing for that for many decades. And what happens as they were preparing for that, they realized that they needed to become and be ready to move from uh, their, their life here, fairly comfortable and affluent, to a life in Chad. And these are some of the principles they came up with as they thought about that. They decided that they were going to live a, uh, to simplify their lives. So there's a slide that says simplify. Um, uh, and their idea of what it means to simplify, to live a simple lifestyle means to live uh, intentionally beneath your potential standards of living for the purpose of sharing your ex excess uh, with others. And so the idea is that to live more simply that others might simply live. And so as they thought about that, they recognized that as they began to not utilize and not you know, um, utilize all the, the income and potential that they had to live a certain standard of living, that they intentionally lived another standard so that the difference could be given out and shared with others. Does that make sense? So to live more simply that others might simply live. Live more simply that others might simply live. And they said, you know, the benefits of that would be to increase your focus on things that matter, to decrease our stress, um, and these are what they found personally, that they would improve their, per, uh, their physical health, that they would be less impulsive in buying. I have this problem. I go to Costco, <laughs> and sometimes there's this deal that I can't, like, oh, oh, I, oh, I had to buy a cap yesterday. I got home and said, I have so many caps. So what am I gonna do? I have to return it tomorrow. This is too convicting. Okay. Um, you know, uh, for, uh, it increases our dependence upon the Lord. Um, it helps us recognize that our self-worth, our sense of who we are, is not in the houses and the cars and income and all these things, but in our relationship with Christ and Him alone. It helps us in terms of benefiting others, in terms of giving of our time, our treasures, our energy, our talents, all these kind of things. And so this idea that you and I, when we have the right orientation, when Christ is on the throne of our lives, when the cornerstone is in the right, uh, we have, are building on the correct cornerstone, then we recognize that the stuff that we have is that which drives who we are, what we do. I was uh, with a young pastor who just moved into this area, um, and he's from Nebraska. He's from sort of uh, a small town in Nebraska. And so he is new to ministry in New England. And he asked me uh, recently, he said, why is it that people don't seem to have enough time to invest in church and people, the church, he asked me. He said, is that because people have to? Or is that because people choose to? And I thought to myself, yes and yes, have to and choose to, sort of. That the choices that many have made early on 
become have-tos later, right? The choices that we make determine the things that we can fit in our lives. And as we thought about that, I said, you know, because we live in New England, you know, people are fairly educated and we have certain aspirations for our lives, our careers, our children. And so we choose to live in certain neighborhoods with certain kinds of schools. We choose to have certain kinds of cars and things. And so that drives how much work we have to do, that drives the kind of jobs we have to have, it drives how many spouses need to work, it drives, um, you know, all these things. And so these choices, these dreams and aspirations start driving all these smaller decisions. Does that make sense? And so the answer was, yes, we choose to, but yes, we have to after we start making some of those choices. I said, when it happens that we begin and recognize that then we've shifted our foundation from Christ to other foundations. Because all of a sudden we've systemically limited the amount of time, energy, treasures we have for God and his kingdom. Right? So where is your foundation? Who is on the throne of your life? Because you can't have more than one. Either it's going to be God himself, relationship with him and his people and his eternal purposes, or it's going to be focused on our economic bracket and those decisions that we sometimes we've kind of slid into because we live in an affluent area. We live in an affluent nation. We must prioritize God and his kingdom. Because he's the only one worthy, worthy to be worshipped this way. To build our foundation upon. Finally, oh, I forgot. I'll end this quote. I think it's a paraphrase because I couldn't find it. Okay, so excuse me. I'm pretty sure that C.S. Lewis said it. <laughs> I couldn't find it. We are primarily... We are not primarily spiritual beings having a spiritual experience. But rather, we are primarily spiritual beings or eternal with having or experiencing a temporal physical experience. I want you to think about that. Okay, it, it's a paraphrase of C.S. Lewis. I know it's in there somewhere. It's a paraphrase. That's how I remember it. Because oftentimes when we look at one another, we think, you know, hey, oh, these people, they're wonderful. They're physical beings. And uh, we forget that we're primarily spiritual. That our souls will live on for eternity. It's the physicality that's going to be limited the way we understand it. So how ought essentially spiritual beings build their lives? Upon what foundation ought we? You can read the smaller print there if you want. But it's, it's really this idea that we are spiritual beings. Okay. So the first reason why we're invited to prioritize God and his kingdom is because it's the most secure, right? The second reason why is because God is the only one worthy of our lives being built upon him. 
The third is because God is the only one who is the only one who is truly loving. Truly loving. And this is the one that, you know, um, I, I love this passage because it talks about how pagans run after these things later on in this passage, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and, and, and all these kind of things. Let me read that section. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we uh, um, wear? For the pagans run after, or those who do not believe in God, right, don't have a loving heavenly father, these unbelievers, um, that they, they run after these things. But your father in heaven knows that you need them. Therefore, seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness, and all these things shall be added or given to you as well. This is the promise in this section. What you see there are some three things that he says before that, before he gets to that conclusion. I start there. I start there because a reminder that these things are normal and natural if you don't know that you're a spiritual being. If you don't recognize and remember and dwell and live as if you're a spiritual being, then oftentimes we forget these things. And so, you know, this beginning of this passage says, um, there's a little circle there, um, therefore, oh, here. Okay, there you go. Oh, yay. Okay. And so sometimes we think we're spiritual beings, but we, we only see the physical. We only see the body and the soul and the spirit. And inside the soul, some suggest that we see a conscious, it's our consciousness, our fellowship with God, our intuition. But if you look at this, it reminds us that, look, God is speaking to us in relationship to us in body, soul, and spirit. And not just our bodies. We're more than spiritual, I mean, um, um, corporal beings. I love how N.T. Wright suggests that as we think about what it means in his book, Simply Christian, he suggests that we all sense something deeper. Um, uh, uh, Ecclesiastes, Solomon, uh, King Solomon uh, hypothesized and said, we all have eternity in our hearts. Eternity in our hearts. We know when we close our eyes and recognize and sit in nature, we know there's something more than that which we simply smell and feel and touch and see. We recognize that there's eternity. N.T. Wright suggests that eternity calls out to us like an echo, like a whisper, like a, 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 a glimpse of something that we have yet to see, that we know but we have, can't grasp. He says, when we have a desire and a, and a deep ache for justice and mercy, that is a reflection of who God is and we, 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 we try to grasp it. We march for it. We long for it. We pray for it. We fight for it. We litigate for it. That, that is God. Partly of an experience of who he is. When we know and we close our eyes, we know that there's more to this life than that which we see. He says that it's our spirituality, this deeper sense of our spirit longing for this deeper thing. And this deeper thing concludes this longing and yearning for intimacy and relationship. That we're not simply machines. That we're simply not, you know, just doing these things that we need relationships and deep and lasting and our eternal relationships with each other, with the God of eternity. And when we desire and we delight in beauty, that too is this echo, this whisper of God to us. We know that there's more to life than that which we see. We know that there's more to life, it says here in verse 28. And why do you, uh, sorry, here we go. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink and what you, your body, put on your body. Um, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And they, uh, Are you not much more valuable than they? Who, by, by worrying, can you add one hour to your life? This idea that we, that God um, reminds us over and over that he takes care, he takes care, we are more important, you know, our, our lives are more important than the physical things, and that, um, like the birds of the air, there's a picture of birds of the air, like the birds of, the, of Israel, God takes care of them. They don't sow, they don't do all these things, they are provided for by God. And so here, are you not more um, Are you not more valuable than they, is the question, is the statement. We are more valuable to God than the birds of the air. Because we are made in the image of God. Daughters and sons of his. And if he were to care for the birds of the air, how much more is the argument in scripture? It goes from the lesser to the greater. How much more? We used to have a little snail. Hermy. We used to feed him, give him water and stuff like that. Came in a little container, and the boys liked it, you know, and things like that. And uh, we used to take care of it every day. But how much more would we take care of our boys? You know, I would have to go shopping at Costco every week. I had to buy four gallons of milk every week. Our boys would never be out of milk and all the food, right? Because why? Because I cared. I asked, I care for Hermy. He eventually got lost in our house. Six months later, we found him. He was crawling to the nearest water thing, but he was still fine. He was, I was like, oh, okay. But, you know, I care for that little guy, but how much more do we care for our sons? For those of you who are parents, you know that, right? I think it's cool. It's interesting, I think, how a lot of people get puppies before they have children. And, you know, the, the, everything's the world's about the puppies and so on and so forth. Then the children come, and then it's all like, well, puppies are cool. They're, they're good. They're still part of our family, but they're not quite the same order of magnitude, right, uh, as our children. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, McCalmonts. I, I, know, I, I know Bristol's really sweet. I, I, I get it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Bristol is beautiful, but still not quite as beautiful as Lily and Ava. Okay. Not just, just a little. Okay, you get, you get it. How much more does God care for us? In the next passage, how much more? He says, and why do you worry about your clothes? You see the lilies of the field, uh, um, they, how they grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet even Solomon, all his splendor, was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, uh, which is today, here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Flowers of the field, as beautiful as the prince and princess, I guess the duke and duchess are, um, in their, all their grandeur and their beautiful clothes, could they even match the flowers of the field? No, and yet they're fuel for fire you know, in the Middle East. They gather up all the grass, all the stubble, toss them in, and just, and they don't have to worry about it. 
I like being as fashionable as the next guy if it's sold at Costco. But it's not something that we need to aspire to. We can live more simply that others might simply live, right? Live more simply that others might simply live, and we know we can do that because our Heavenly Father will take care of us. I love this passage because later on, it reminds us, actually in the Luke version, these are all connected. Um, but uh, in Luke, uh, here, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, uh, 7, verse uh, 9, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will, they give, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If then you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, gifts good, uh, good, give good gifts to those who ask? The same principle. Yeah? We have a loving, caring, powerful, heavenly Father. If we, humans, can give all these great gifts to our children, and we're flawed, imperfect, oftentimes selfish, how much more will the perfect, loving, unconditional Father care for us? I began... Oh, I have this, you know, this is an old Bible, right? This is a 30-year-old Bible. I re-bound it. And the note, it said, how does the next verse jive with, the, with, with all this? Because the next verse says, um, so in everything do unto others what you would have them do unto you, the golden rule. And I always wonder, why is that verse like adjacent to this one? It didn't make no sense to me until this week. I think because of what happens in the earlier passage, which is three paragraphs earlier. Because when we know our Heavenly Father will take care of us, then we can extend the golden rule to others open-handedly with joy. Is that right? Because we know that God will take care of us, therefore we can treat others with generosity, with love, and with, with you know, open-handedly. That's why in the New Testament, we have the positive and not simply the negative of this verse that many other uh, religions. The positive is, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Because we're confident that God will take care of us as we do so. So in conclusion, I would suggest that as we think about what it means to Put God's kingdom first. Because it is the best investment we can make. Because he's the only one worthy. And because ultimately he is the God who is our heavenly father who will care for us. We can make him the foundation of our lives. To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Ed and I have, and the boys have been on this journey all of our lives. And as we've journeyed, we recognize that as we've um, trying to give our time, our talents, our treasures, it's a continual you know, journey in our lives. Back, you know, uh, uh, and we're still not nearly there yet. Not nearly there. But God has demonstrated himself faithful over the years. Um, but as I grew up in, in the Asian American uh, uh, dream that we had when I was growing up, my parents were immigrants. Um, they had nothing. We, I, I remember sleeping in a 
uh, a queen size bed in the perpendicular direction with my two, with my other, with my brother and my sister, right? And so we grew up that way. My parents were in the other bed, just the other side of the room. That's how I grew up, and that's so our parents, as new immigrants, uh, dirt poor, um, they um, scrimped and saved so that we would have an education. And so I was the first one in my uh, family uh, to go to university. I was the first one. They were so proud of me when I went to university, graduated as an engineer, and uh, they really wanted me to be established so that I could, you know, so all my life it was get good grades so you can go to a good school, right? So you can get a good paying job, so you can get a nice house, and so you can put, you know, marry a nice uh, Chinese girl, you know, to, to put in that house and have nice Chinese kids and, and, and keep that thing going, right? And just keep wrapping it around. That was how it's supposed to go. And so what happened was that when, um, when I graduated as a Campbell engineer and worked for a while, I just kind of sensed that God was maybe calling me into ministry. And, um, and I didn't like that idea because that's certainly not what my dad and mom, who are not believers at that point, wanted. They were like, I, I remember my, the day I told my dad, Dad, I think I'm going to quit my um, uh, technical job um, and, uh, and, 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 and go to seminary to study about Jesus, and maybe even become a minister. And he flew off the handle. And he said, I can't believe I raised such a stupid son. He said, I can't believe you're going to give up your $26,000 job to pay money to go to school, graduate school, right? Two, two or three years of tuition to make a salary that's one, like 40% less. That just didn't make any economic sense to him whatsoever. Okay? Whatsoever. I said, okay, I'm sorry, Dad. But it's sense that what God is calling us, me to do. And so God has been faithful through the years. It didn't make a lot of economic sense um, back then. And it doesn't in the economy of the world, as it were, but God has continued to be faithful to Edna and I over the years as we've learned to give, as we've learned to believe in God. Oh, that, that's right. We're young then. <laughs> I was young and thin then. And, uh, but God has been faithful as we learn to give a little bit more, as we learn from, to go from uh, giving a, 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 a spare, uh, periodically and when we were moved by missions committee and missions folks, right? Uh, to, you know, to in, in college giving a little bit more um, regularly um, and then proportionally and then, you know, even sacrificially moving towards that direction. Uh, so God has taken care of us um, over the years. And I want to see, say that this passage has been huge. When I finally decided, um, since God called me into full, because even when I was in seminary, I was still kind of like, oh, does God really want me to do this for the rest of my life? I'm really not a great communicator and still struggle with that. Um, and it was when um, I experienced God's grace in my life that these verses became even more real to me. That we seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. And so with that, I suggest that as we, the people of God, as we think about what God is calling us to be as a people here at East Lexington, as a people here at Grace Chapel, as a people who are committed to make, going and making disciples of all nations, that we're called to be those who trust that as we seek first his kingdom, 
as we place our time, our treasures, our energies, our relationships, that we seek him as the foundation, the biggest rock or ball in our bucket, then he'll take care of us. He's the only secure bet we have. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us so. We thank you for the realities your scripture opens up to us that we're so easily deceived sometimes. Help us, we pray, to experience your love and your grace for us more deeply. That we would know that we could trust, that we can depend upon you. That as you invite us to a fuller, more abundant life of giving and generosity to others, God, you will take care of us, both here and in the life to come. We pray that your kingdom would come 